say hombre, hold another bottle. Look a little closer, cigar in Moscato. An actor in improv, coming from Chicago. Alto, make way for Paul Vato. Mr. Bill Potts, look at you. Howdy. You know, howdy. Howdy. I don't There's have a lot of music up. playing. Is that supposed to be there or is that on my phone? What's that, the wait bot? Do you hear music playing right now, like guitar music? And a pause? That was okay, our, that's part of your show. Got it. That was part of our intro. Uh, I don't think you have control over what music or Muzak you can play. But I'm, that was I'm, definitely uh, Muzakish. That was very Muzakish. <laughs> Bill, that was Muzakalfanakish. Uh, a little bit, a little bit, right? How are you, my friend? I'm doing really good. Um, I um, I got very little sleep last night. Uh, up on a long phone call, and then uh, I met with some. Uh, well, I went to church, and then I went, met with some friends. Uh, my friend Owen Hammer talking about his uh, his new comic book, Von Bach, and some other one, wonderful projects like that. And then um, headed right over here, and I didn't know I'd be on camera. So, uh, pardon me for taking a minute extra longer to get on camera. No, well, you look you look amazing. And have you have you lost weight? Not that that's what makes you look amazing, but I appreciate you, you look- that. And yes, yes, I did lose some weight. Um, uh, I'm not getting on the scale to to like dissuade myself because, like, what if it's only two pounds but it looks like fifty? So, <laughs> I, well, I, I lost a lot. No, it's funny you would mention the word 50 or the number 50 because uh, it usually takes about 50 pounds for people to notice even a weight gain, a, a weight change, a, a weight loss. Yeah. So don't feel bad if you see people and they don't say anything. And then all of a sudden, when you hit that 50 pounds, all of a sudden they're like, have you lost a little bit of weight? You're like, bro, I've lost 50 pounds. So <laughs> you know, don't let that discourage you. But uh, congratulations. Thank you. So uh, let me just do a quick introduction. I want to welcome everyone to Paul Vato Presents. And today my guest is Bill Cott. And Bill Cott is an award-winning uh, improv teacher, but he's, he's also an, an incredible actor, comedian, uh, satirist, improviser, sketch artist, uh, all of the above, uh, star of stage and screen. So, Bill, I really want to thank you for spending your Greek Easter with us. Uh, thank you. Sir, even though we don't Please celebrate, we're done with ours. Yeah, I know. I'm no. I'm no longer. Uh, I. I was uh, part of my part of my youth. I was raised Orthodox Catholic. I'm not technically Orthodox Catholic any longer, but I do. Um, you know, I there, there there was a lot about a lot of the Orthodox traditions that really hit home to me, and so there's there's still part of my Easter, even though I celebrate back on the regular calendar, if at all. The normal. That's right. Yeah. No, I, so I, I not that I would know that, but why was there an Orthodox uh, background? Who, where were your? Is it must have been where were your parents from, or your father, or your mother? Or? It's a long story. My father wanted to be a priest. He was trained to be a Roman Catholic priest. He went to the seminary and was all ready to become a priest. And then he met my mother. Uh, and the Orthodox Church has a married priesthood. So we would we had been popping around to we had been Episcopalian, Lutheran, whatever. And then he remembered the nuns mentioning something about the Orthodox Church and how they had a married priesthood. And he was like, hey. So then we moved to uh, South Canaan, Pennsylvania, in northeastern Pennsylvania, where he completed his seminary training to become an Orthodox priest. And we were that for a while. 
That's an amazing story. I don't think I knew that. Uh, so was your father in the priesthood his whole life or, or what? No. Well, for most of his youth, he was being groomed, uh, pardon the expression, to be a priest. Um, I see where this is then, going. Yeah. And then, you know, like he learned Greek, Hebrew, Latin, um, you know, philosophy, literature. He did it all. And, um, you know, right before he took his final vows, that was it. And so then, you know, um, in the Orthodox Church, there were other things, other classes that he had to take. And now he had to learn some Slavonic and uh, some other things, um, which, uh, which kind of, unfortunately, um, Orthodoxy, at least in America, is so segmented into Russian, Greek, uh, Romanian, etc., that it's it's difficult for them to grow here because you know it's important to preserve customs from you know where people are from. But if you're trying to reach out and get new people involved who don't speak that language, they're never going to enter that church unless there's a, a significant amount of English in it for them to be able to absorb it and understand what's being said, uh, etc. Um, and certainly, there's a place for having you know, one liturgy in, in one language and another in English or the the language of whatever country they're from. But like in Russia for many years under communism, they were forbidden from doing it in the language of the country in, in Russian. So they had to do it in Slavonic, which is kind of like a dead Slavic language, kind of like the Latin of Eastern Europe. Um, so, um, you know, the Russian government didn't want the people to understand what they were really talking about in church. Uh, because it might empower the people for one reason or another, or disempower them one way or the other. And um, uh, so, yeah, in, in America, there's this unique problem of um, of people wanting to preserve the culture that they came from um, without without making an effort towards, you know, for lack of a better word, evangelism. Not, not that orthodoxy or any form of Catholicism is considered evangelical uh, that I'm aware of. But uh, you do want to make an effort to grow your congregation instead of like hope that the grandkids stay in the religion that their grandparents were raised in. Right, right. You know what? That, that makes perfect sense because you're right. You're always like, oh – there is the Russian Orthodox. There is the Greek Orthodox. There is, uh, you know, and, and I knew I had, I have, I had, and I have Greek friends. So for me, I always called it Greek Easter. And then, you know, as you grow up, and it's, I mean, maybe as your worldview expands, you're like, wait, even a minute, the Greeks like, call it Greek Easter. <laughs> it's not good. So now I'm like Orthodox Easter. You know, I, you know, because not everyone well, is Greek. And the Russians are like, but we, yes, it is Greek Easter. Uh, wonderful. Well, Bill, it is such a pleasure to catch up with you and, and to see you here. We can chat about whatever you'd like. And if you have time, we can even bring some people up and maybe they can ask you uh, some questions because you've had such an amazing, this is something about you that I didn't know. And it, you reminded me a little bit of, uh, of John Lutz, who I believe grew up with a, with a preacher, a pre preacher for a father. I just remember that was one of the things about our, our I think our mutual friend, uh, John Lutz, who, who went on to, yeah. uh, Right on, you know, Saturday Night Live, I believe, and and uh, or Thirty Rock, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of great shows. So um, it's 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 and it's amazing to see the success that has come out of 
Chicago. Uh, oh, yeah. Company excluded, but uh, myself, I mean. Uh, but, you know, just the the people that have come out. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that – is it the work ethic? Is it just that we're naturally funny? Why have there been so many successful people, especially in comedy, sketch comedy, improv comedy, and any of the shows that are based around that? I want to say there's two reasons, one of which is immersion. When you're in the Chicago scene – you don't you 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 don't just like go off and do your thing. Well, there are some people that would, you know, they would have their nine to five job or whatever, be an improviser on Saturday and then forget about it all week. But most people who go there to study are going to wind up doing it six, seven days a week, several shows or classes a day. They're going to be doing, you know, Second City, I.O., Annoyance, every other theater that has grown up there since comedy sports, uh, which is one of the earlier ones, too. Um and so there's so many different um, uh, opportunities to completely immerse yourself in improvisation in Chicago. But I think also the camaraderie, you know, we stick in touch with people that we learned with, you know, like I'm I'm going to be in Portugal this summer with uh, one of my best friends. And we've known each other since we went through the uh, the Second City Training Center together, you know, friend of yours as well, Yvonne Landry. And um she is is bringing me to a European intensive. She started her own thing called the Superhero Training Center. You can find out more about that at SuperheroTrainingCenter.com. Um, but she is holding a European intensive for acting, stage combat, improv, character work, clown. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be studying clown for a week and then teaching character improv for a week. Um, and that's because Yvonne and I came up through the second city system and, you know, you, you reach out and you work with friends of yours and, you know, um, I think almost everybody that we know, maybe if they didn't reach out to us, they at least reached out to other Chicago, like Lutz is another great example of that. You know, he was friends with Tina back in Chicago. They were even on the same Herald team, I believe. And so she reached back and, you know, pulled him in the production and made him a part of it. Uh, 30 Rock and you know so many of our friends have done that she she got her job at Saturday Night Live because she's brilliant but also because um, Adam McKay who's now a brilliant filmmaker reached down and said hey you know what this woman deserves her due she deserves her shot uh, you know so we all learn to hone our talent there but we also make the connections that people are aware of our our wheelhouse they're aware of our abilities that that is so true, and and again, I think Tina Fey is a perfect example. You can you can absolutely not take anything away from her, uh, but you know, knowing someone from Chicago like Adam McKay, and he's like, hey, this person needs to be out here. I mean, I remember when I first arrived on the scene, and I came in from the suburbs, so I kind of was- fell in between that. You know, hey, I only do this on the weekends because I've got this business to run, but mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to be you know to have my own business at that. I owned a gourmet ice cream and coffee shop, Oberweiss Dairy. Of Geneva, yeah. so I could actually drive into the city, so I could do somewhere in between where I wasn't doing it every day, but maybe two or three times a week. And then, especially once yeah. I started South Station and did Touched by an Anglo, you know, I was able to dedicate <laughs> the weekend to that, and but then still pick up a class here and there d- during the week. But I remember when when it was kind of you know like like when Horatio was first going out there. But I, I'm sure that, you know, Tim Meadows was already out there and Chris Farley had already been out there. And I'm sure they were like, hey, there's this guy, Adam McKay, you should know. So it kind of all just trickles that way. And and obviously you have to have ha- have the chops and the talent, but it, it's nice to have that connection. Even when we moved to LA, I, you know, I, I, I guess you were there and uh, Jim Zulovic was our first call. We're like, well, what do we do? We, 
It's 2000. We just moved here. We don't know anyone. And he was like, oh, let's, there's this bar we can go smoke at. That's where I go. <laughs> you can still smoke there. And we're like, okay, sorry for my uh, my impression, but we just That I was a pretty it. good Zulavik impression. I knew exactly what you were doing, so that means it's a good impression. <laughs> I hate it here. It's always sunny. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he did enjoy the Chicago weather above all. He was one of those people who um, – who was such a Chicagoan to his core, you know, you know, we lost him way too soon, but you know, some people, they just, you know, they're at their best when they're in Chicago. Um, and they, they still thrive and do wonderful things out here in LA. And God knows he worked on a lot of projects when he was out here, but, um, he also, you know, he loved being a Chicagoan and being in Chicago. And, you know, so many of our friends do and spend so much time back there, I, you know, I wish I could go back there and visit more often. I feel like I don't have as many roots there anymore because so many generations have gone by of, of improvisers, performers, or whatever. No one's going to know us, Bill. We're going to show up at Corcoran's or Last Act. I don't even remember what it's called now or Old Town <laughs> Ale House. My headshot is long gone from behind the bar. The, my headshot used to hang at the – it was my, my, my first black and white headshot taken mm-hmm. in the 1900s back in like 96 or 90, 97, 98. And it hung right on the corner uh, at, at the far end of the bar at the Old Town Ale House. And I was I was walking in uh, in uh, Los Feliz, I think it was. I was walking from one bar to, to, to the next. So I don't even know if it was Los Feliz, but but I was going from one bar to the next. And I'm going across the street and this young lady walks by me. She goes, Paul Vato. I go, hey, what's – you know, I'm like, who – okay. First, I'm like, who is this? Do I owe her an apology? And, uh, and I was like, hey, how's it going? And she goes, you don't know me. And I go, oh, okay. I go, who are you? She goes, I stare at your photo all the time at the Old Town Ale House in Chicago. She goes, I sit at the end of that bar. And I was like, oh, my God. And I was just, like, so grateful and thankful that she at least said that. But my first instinct is like, oh, God, what did I do to this poor girl? Uh, and, right. But, she, but she, she read right through it. She goes, you don't know me. I was like, oh, okay, what happened? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, so, so yeah, I, no one's going to know us when, when we go back. But – Bill, it would be so wonderful. And if you, if you ever do, let me know because I would love to join you on that trip because I, I think it would bring back some memories. I mean, so much time was spent there at those bars, you know, and around the yeah. Improv Olympic area and all that. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I can still picture Jim in his slightly oversized Chicago cop jacket. You know, yep. it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. And then years later, uh, because of the cigar business, I met a guy named Mark Thomas, who's the guy that started the alley. Uh, oh wow! Pipers, the alley, right where they sold Doc Martens and all that yeah, gear. That the alley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I bought my yeah. first pair of Docs, I believe. Well, he was the guy that first brought him into Chicago, and and he did all the. He he was a jeweler. He he made uh, silver jewelry, a silver. Yeah. And uh, so he owned like like a, a blue taboo or whatever the sex shop and the alley mm-hmm. shop. He owned all that. That was I, I, and Blue Havana, which was his. Uh, Cigar shop, and that's how I met him through the cigar business. But I randomly met him uh, at a convention, and then we just became friends. But he's the guy that brought in those cop jackets, the the Doc Martens, you know, back in the seventies or whatever. So yeah. a lot of history, a lot of history there, Bill. You're originally from St. Louis, I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong. You're uh, absolutely right. I was born in St. Louis, and then I. We was raised all over the country because not only were we were we chasing dad's dream of being a priest eventually someday, 
but he was a freelance writer. He wrote for, he wrote industrials for, you know, for companies like, you know, um, International Harvester and Shell and, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, he wrote for McDonnell Douglas during the space program. <clears throat> so wow. we would move based on his job. So it was like, it was like being an army brat, only your dad was the opposite of a drill sergeant. <laughs> he was a comedy writer uh, working in the corporate world. Did he teach you things or did you learn this comedy? Because you have such a brilliant comedy mind, Bill, that, and, and I don't know, does it come from somewhere? I know that obviously the training helps, but there must be some kind of, you know, something part from of your it comes from Part of it comes from both of my grandfathers um, who were performers uh, later in life. They were both also, you know, um, you know, union family men. One of them was a welder and the other was a machinist. Uh, but they always performed, you know, if there was a community production or a church production or whatever they had the opportunity to do. And then my my mother's father, George Muse, we don't have the same last name, but that was her maiden name. Um, he was, hold on, I'll show you a picture of him. Oh, no, it's glued to the wall. I thought it was like tacked up there or something. Anyway, uh, he was one of few SAG actors that were headquartered in St. Louis. So uh, anytime there was a big thing like a, a McDonald's commercial that needed Watson from Holmes and Watson, you know, he had this mustache. It was perfect for that. He would play Santa Claus and later grew out a full beard so that he could be Santa Claus year round and made a lot of money. And uh, used to work with uh, Mickey Carroll, who was one of the uh, one of the munchkins in the original Wizard of Oz. And since he was a little person, uh, he would often get cast as an elf. And my grandfather, who looked like Santa Claus, always got cast as Santa Claus. So they were two of the few SAG actors that were in St. Louis, and they were always working together, you know? Oh, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. Now, and did I read this somewhere? Am I making this up? So did your dad also put you in a commercial? Were you in any of his commercials? Or um, No. Okay. No, he didn't write commercials per se. He wrote more, more industrials. Oh, industrials. They did take the theme song that he wrote for um, Standard and Amico, Ring a Bell, ding, ding, that were in commercials all over the 70s, every time you saw a commercial for Standard yeah. or Amico. And he wrote that originally for an industrial, and then it was so popular that they used it in their commercials. That's amazing. I remember it. I mean, because I, I remember that distinct ding, ding, you know, the... Yeah, like you used to roll over that little hose when you go to the gas stations and it'd make the ding, ding. Yeah, and then somebody would because somebody had to run out and pump your gas and clean your windshield and check exactly. under the. I mean, they, they had have to know everything. everything. What a life, you know how things have changed. I know that there's still some places on the East Coast where you're not allowed to pump your own gas, but you know, but, you know, if anyone's listening that's younger, they're like, "Well, wait, well, what do they care who shows up?" Well, like somebody had to pump your gas and clean your windshield and do all that. Yeah. That's that's amazing. So then um, and we have another connection. And I, I know that we've brought this up before, but uh, I, I had a cigar customer, a really good cigar customer who loves cigars mm -hmm. and loves bought those cigars and and uh, attends the, the big smoke every year. And he has for the past 20 years. I don't he, he may have missed one if he has. I don't think he has. Uh, but he uh, you worked with him at yeah. a bank that he owned, apparently. Yeah. Uh, St. John's Bank. Uh, in Overland, Missouri, which is where I went to high school, where my father grew up, uh, where his mother grew up. 
um, that community there. St. John's Bank had been around, you know, all my life and way before that. And um, so when my sister graduated, she was looking for work and she found a job uh, working as an administrative assistant at St. John's Bank and immediately moved up the ladder. And, you know, at the time, Fletcher was uh, vice president at St. John's Bank. And so she was secretary to the vice president. And uh, so that didn't hurt when I graduated from from high school and was looking for work instead of working going back to work at the Steak and Shake where I was working at. Uh, people aren't familiar with the Midwest Steak and Shake is, you know, that burger chain that makes amazing shakes and uh, and chili. So anyway, um, that but that was that was my job before that. And then, you know, once once my sister was able to put in a good word, I met with uh, Fletcher's brother because his family was very much a part of that bank and founding of that bank. His brother, Mark, was um, uh, head of HR, so he brought me in the office and already knew that he liked me and thought I was funny and whatever. So they both supported me, and, you know, I worked my way through college, basically working at St. John's Bank, you know. Not like – I wasn't, like, directly under Fletcher, so I, I would see him and be like, I shouldn't bug him because he's the vice president of the bank, but he's also cool with my sister, so what do I do? And um, I think, you know, working at the bank – uh, really prepared me for listening a lot. You know, you have to listen as an improviser. And um, I really took a lot of time to like listen to people and slow down. Because when also when you're a bank teller, especially in the uh, mid mid to late 90s, um, your, your customers tend to be a lot older because younger people use the ATMs and, you know, other things. The people who are actually in the bank are going to be older people. Sometimes who are confused by some of the new processes and need to talk it over or they're lonely and you know, you become a, a surrogate grandchild for them or whatever. And I, I guess I have that sort of grandchild face and a lot of them would spend a little extra time. So I'd spend a little extra time listening and um, yeah, I loved my experience there. And then Fletcher when years later, when I, uh, when I opened for the Smothers brothers at the family arena in St. Charles, uh, Fletcher got like, you know, seats on the floor at the arena to see, see me perform. And I'm probably, probably mostly for the Smothers Brothers, but, uh, it was good to know that he was out there as well as my family and, you know, people from all over my life, but he was definitely one of the people that I was proud to have in that audience. Of course, of course. And he is very, of course, he's very proud of you. And it was, it was just one of those things where, you know, as you start to know your customers and they become more like clients than customers and Fletcher and I would chat. And then, you know, of course, my history of comedy came up in Chicago and he probably mentioned, oh, I had an employee of mine that went off uh, to and, and now is kind of famous. His name is Bill Cott. And I'm like, of course, I know Bill Cott. Yes, <laughs> Or, or yeah, that, that's probably the only way it would have happened because I didn't know that you worked at a bank. And then he told me his history of owning this bank or his family mm-hmm. starting this bank and you, you, you yeah. being one of his star employees and uh, or co-workers, as I like to say. And uh, so it was just star a, employee a, uh, amazing. So then you did you kind of like quit cold turkey and move to Chicago or did you ever commute or did you just decide – and how did you know to go to Chicago? Because the internet was yeah. maybe just starting or? Yeah, the internet was not a thing before then, no. Uh, it was because of my dad, because he would do, you know, when he worked with Hormel, International Harvester, companies that worked out of Chicago, uh, he was already familiar with Second City from SCTV. 
and you know he knew that they did you know Saturday Night Live and you know he was probably familiar of like the history of the Compass because the Compass you know that later became Second City started off in St. Louis. That's right. When my dad was in college, and I kept on asking him, "Did you ever go to the Crystal Palace at Gaslight Square to see you know Mike Nichols and Elaine May or any of those you know Severn Darden Del Close? That's where Del Close started improvising." Uh, and my dad was like, "No, we didn't really know about any of all that." I was like, "Okay." They went to the Muni Opera and saw musical comedy in an outdoor setting. But um, but so my dad was very, very much aware of Second City and made me and my brother and my sister very much aware of it. You know, before anybody else knew Second City from, you know, when it became a big hit or a SCTV, when it became a big hit on uh, on NBC, we had been watching it on PBS, uh, which was like rebroadcasts of their CBC program. And it was, um, you know, we would be walking around talking like Bob and Doug McKenzie going, goo, 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 before anybody knew what that was. And we were going through the roof when their album came out and they had two hit songs, the, the 12 Beers of Christmas and uh, Take Off with Getty Lee. My sister was already a huge Rush fan anyway. So, uh, yeah, so we were, we were steeped in Second City. And so what I did was what anybody used to do in that day was I went to a bookstore uh, that had a mag- a book stand, a magazine stand, a, new- a newsstand. That was the term we used to use back in the day. Uh, they had a newsstand that would have, you know, the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and all the other papers. So I got a Sunday paper, Chicago Tribune, and circled all the ones that said Bank Teller, because that was the thing I had the most professional experience with at the time. I had a degree in communication, so I could have probably looked for a communications job, but I took the easy route because I knew I was going to leave whatever job it was eventually, hopefully, and worked out that way to, you know, to become an actor. So I, I wasn't really like, you know, what's the best use of my degree? That didn't matter. So um, I, uh, I got a job at Boulevard Bank, which was the basement of the Wrigley Building, uh, or the, the ground floor of the Wrigley Building, but the vault was in the basement. So my last, one of my last official jobs was working um, in the vault underneath the Wrigley Building, which if you stepped outside of the vault, you know, through two secured doors, you'd walk through a hallway out into a garage, and then there was the Billy Goat Tavern. So a lot of mornings, uh, I would go to the Billy Goat Tavern uh, and have breakfast after checking in and doing my morning deposits, waiting for the afternoon deposits to come in, or me and Jerry, the other guy that worked down there in the vault with me, it was just two tellers down in the vault all day counting money, and we could take it at our own pace. And if you got through everything early, then you just sit around the office and, you know, shoot the shit for a couple hours, which is what we did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you had like a counting machine. You had. Yeah, uh, you put it in a But then there were some yeah. things that you would have to. That was counting machines back then weren't, you know, putting it through the machine for a strand and making sure that they weren't counterfeit or anything like that. So you really had to keep an eye on it. A lot of them you could tell by touch whether it was a counterfeit didn't come into many many counterfeits but i i came across maybe five or six in my career as a teller oh wow okay that's not a lot no it's not that many i not as many people do it because the thing was at least by that point you had the marker that you could do the marker on the on the bill and it would either leave a mark or not and that's how you knew whether it was um a counterfeit but nobody tends to really counterfeit fives and tens no, 20s at that point were a little bit updated, so they wouldn't even really do it with a 20 either. So you just had to look out for the hundreds and be like, hmm, this doesn't look good. Or, you know, people would try to pass things where they would cut 
the corners off of a $10 bill and then paste a 20 onto it. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Maybe it was somebody's leftover magic trick, but didn't you just burn a $10 bill then? You know, it's no longer usable as the 10. So then you're out 10 anyway. Well, I'd heard a story where if you would, if you were to send in like the four corners of a bill, they'd send you a new bill, but I don't think that that was true. Well, then why don't people just take one corner from different bills and make new bills? So I don't think that could be true. Yeah. Uh, did you ever run into, I don't know, uh, who were the famous icons of the Billy Goat Tavern, but like Mike Royko, or uh, did you ever see any of these no. people? No, I never, never saw, or if I did, I didn't know that it was them, but I, I, I don't believe I ever saw any of the uh, Chicago um, Denzians who were regulars at the uh, at the Billy Goat. Of course, of course. And so around what year was this, Bill, if you don't mind re- uh, revealing? I moved, I moved to Chicago in 92. So uh, summer of 92. And that, that, and that was my job. And yeah. then I lived in Wicker Park in this place that was originally created to be like a senior living center or assisted living center. And they couldn't fill it. So they started filling it with... Uh, with young artists and stuff like that who, who you know, couldn't afford housing and this made it affordable. But you had to share a bathroom with the person next door to you, like you were some, like, Wild West boarding house or something. Wow. And, uh, I mean, you had your own room type of a thing? or Yeah, my own studio. Yeah, my whole apartment was about as big as my bedroom is right now. Sure, uh, sure. It's it, it mostly my bed. And then right. TV was up on a counter the you know the small refrigerator and stove and everything were kind of like built into the wall and then then you had your shared bathroom situation <laughs> so did you end up at improv olympic first or at second city because you knew of second city or how did I that... wound up at second city i really didn't even know about improv olympic i had heard about it in the ether just a little bit from my friend ray brewer and from tom johnson who later went on to work on the daily show um they were talking about Improv Olympic. Yeah, I, and I was like, I don't have time for that. I'm there for Second City. <laughs> and then um, and then before I even started going to Second City, I was looking through the Chicago Reader, and I would keep on seeing about Improv Olympic. And the first show I saw there was not a good show. Um, but back then, they would have a ticket raffle. Every night, you know, when you bought your ticket, it would go into, you know, a little bowl or whatever, and they'd pull it out. And then they would take, you know, that person would get 15 free tickets or whatever. Because, you know, from a business standpoint, you're going to make more money off the people who come in if you get a cut of the liquor and they bring in, you know, 10, 15 friends and they get in free. and But they drink, you know, $200 worth of beer. You're doing good. Mm-hmm. So I, I was lucky enough to have gotten those tickets because I didn't want to come back. I, I saw it with my brother and he was like, you're better than everybody on that stage. And I said, well, thank you. but. Um, I don't know how to do some of the stuff they were doing. And he was like, you will. And then, uh, and I came back and uh, I saw the family. So my real exposure to IO at first was the family. With that time, it would have been Adam McKay, whom we talked about earlier, uh, Ian Roberts, Matt Besser, Ali Faranakian, and, um, and Miles, of course, yeah. Miles Stroth. So yeah, that was like the, the core 
you know, group of the family. And I was like, wow, Ooh, these guys are amazing. I want to learn how to do that. However, I was all my money from the bank was being spent on rent, food and Second City. And uh, at one point I took a class uh, from Sharna. And um, I was there one week and I came back the next week and I wasn't able to return. The money wasn't there. Um, I also just I didn't feel it was clicking for some reason or not. Personalities, maybe. I don't know. But um, so I didn't return. And then, of course, Sharna called me up. What do you mean? Why are you not coming back? You know, <laughs> why are you even <laughs> talk to me? Talk to me. You could be an intern. Why don't you talk to me? And I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't, I'm already interning at Second City. So I'm really kind of busy. And so um, she was like, all right, whatever, whatever. And then so friends of mine started getting on Herald teams. And um, uh, by the time that I was and then I did comedy sports uh, because they they paid and it wasn't something that I had to pay into. I was getting my I was already paying for an uh, education and improv at Second City. And so I got my stage time and my experience really working in front of a crowd and putting it, suggestions immediately into action. And, you know, um, uh, you know, working for that something wonderful right away with uh, comedy sports. And so I had a pretty damn good skill set, was hired up to the second city right after I graduated from the training center, the conservatory. And uh, as soon as that happened, people started asking me to play in the Armando show or not the Armando show. Yeah, that was the, the Armando the Armando Diaz, Hootenanny, and Theatrical Experiment when we first the mounted Armando it. Diaz, theatrical Experience and Hootenanny. And Hootenanny, there you go. Uh, I was I was in the second show. I, I I was absent for the first show. I think I was touring or something, but I was asked to to workshop with the cast, and so I was in the second show, which means I wasn't in that iconic photo that everybody has of it. I missed out right. on all the iconic memorabilia. Like I was hired up out of Second City for the Dana Carvey show before I could get my name on that wall, that list of people who had put up a review at Second City. So uh, there's a lot of milestones. I wish I could go back in time in history and, and um, you know, flesh out in some way. Um, uh, <laughs> it seems okay. silly. It's a silly little thing. No, and it's rooted no, no, in no. Chicago. And that's no, it's I, me too. I, I mean, I think we all wish we could go back and, and do some, some, some do overs like in 92, I mean, 93, I had to make a decision and it was, it was go to Chicago and learn how to do stand up. Uh, because I didn't know the difference between stand-up and improv, or, or you know, I had the opportunity to buy this gourmet ice cream and coffee shop, Oberweiss Dairy. Uh, and if anyone from the Chicagoland area knows about Oberweiss, it's an amazing product. And I added yeah. coffee to it, and that's how I met uh, my first mentor, Nicholas Papa Nicholas, Greek, slightly oh, Greek man, and he's the one that you know taught Greek. me. All about yeah, what a slightly and Greek, Greek, slightly Greek, Nicholas Papa Nicholas, and um, uh, so I'm glad you know everything worked out the way it did. But it's, it's funny to think that had I gone there in 92 or 93, like maybe we would have met way, way earlier. And I'm just like, oh, what a missed opportunity because Second City was right here in my backyard and I didn't find it till like 97. And um, I went to, you know, I, I didn't go into to Second City first because I'd actually drove into the city in like 92 or 93 and I met with Joyce Sloan. Because I was doing a, a just a small little radio show uh, at a station in 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 the Chicago suburbs in Aurora, where I grew up, and it was I would bring in local stand up comedians that were you know so I had like Rich Hall on, 
you know, like like bigger name comedians and some I've forgotten already, but that were performing that weekend. And I think my show must have been on a Wednesday, probably on Thursday, because they were already in town and then they were going to perform Friday and Saturday and Sunday, two shows each day. So on Thursday, they'd come and do local radio. And I was one of, you know, the, so I remember driving in to talk to and Joyce took a meeting and I was like, I wanted her to maybe sponsor the show or send me comedians. And she was like, well, we don't do stand up. Like, that's nothing that we do. We had a great conversation, whatnot. Uh, but, you know, and of course, she tried to pitch me on Second City. And I was like, I, you know what? I, yeah, I will. But I didn't have, you know, then I bought this shop. So it took me another five years to really get into the city, 97 maybe, when I finally started, you know, and I discovered Improv Olympic. And I, I was there. For, I, my impression of Sharna is not as good as yours, but it was. <laughs> Uh, you know, everyone introduced themselves. And uh, I was like, I'm Paul Vato. You know, I, I want to learn how to do stand-up comedy. And she's like, well, we don't do that here. And, uh, and I, I'd already paid with a check, you know, because we used to write checks. And I was like, well, I've already paid. So I guess teach me what you guys teach. Mm-hmm. And if I like it, I'll stick, ar- I'll stick around. And uh, she was like, whatever. Okay. Uh, here's my dog and Chris Farley and Tim Meadows. And, you know, she would name drop Mike Myers. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So that Monday I went to go see and Armando show. And mm. that was luckily that was my first show that I saw. I mean, I already signed up, I was committed, but it was and I still remember it it was it was uh, Abby Shackner was the monologist mm-hmm. and they, she talked about her father being a dentist from Ohio. And then what you guys did and I don't remember if you were there, forgive me and I I'm sure it was like Brian Stack. I don't remember either. <laughs> but I, was, my, my guess is I wasn't there because every every show that I did in those early days Armando himself was always the monologist. Right. So no, so you no, this was already as it evolved and it was Abby. And maybe we should explain a little bit what the Armando show is or, or, you know, what it's become. And, 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 uh, uh, but I, I think it was probably stack and, and Kevin Dorf and Kevin Mullaney and Peter Gwynn and, and, and Sue Messing and, you know, that group. And I was just like, probably Lutz, John Lutz. I was like, blown away at i was like how do they do this so i knew that there was a trick i didn't know what it was but i'm like okay i gotta learn just like you said i want to do that so yeah, that's yeah. what what got me in, in you know involved with the improv olympic and then eventually second city and i i remember i'd see you know i i, I would see joyce sloan and maybe say hi to her every now and then but i don't think i ever i don't remember ever talking to her and telling her hey remember me we met five years ago and i was pitch, pitching you to be a sponsor and she was like, we don't need to advertise. I think that was the thing. I wanted her to buy advertising on my show. She was like, right. why? We don't have to. And I was like, oh. Everybody okay. comes out to see these shows. That was it. That was it. That's what she said. I'll never forget. I, like, I didn't have a lot of conversations with Joyce because I was very intimidated, even though she's sweet as hell. You know, she's everybody's, you know, grandma, basically. Um, and what, one of the first interactions I had with her was, I had been touring, so I did not see when they mounted Old Wine in New Bottles, which was the 35th anniversary review. And they went back and they workshopped a lot of uh, original Second City scenes with new actors and then would have workshops and guest performers like Avery Schreiber. Um, and uh, and so I, I went in and was able to see it finally after coming back from from tour and you know, like when you get back in town, your first priority is not after touring second city material for two months is not go boy. I'm going to go hang out at second city and see more shows. You spend a couple of days at home, you know? And so the show had been up for quite a while. 
and I was an understudy for it because I was in the touring company. And I was laughing my ass off. I really enjoyed it. I I enjoy the throwback material even more so than the the more um, uh, recent material. So I was really enjoying it, laughing. And I saw Joyce noticing me at one point laughing. And she nodded her head. And then in her mission, she goes, the way you were laughing in there, it seems like you'd never seen this show that you're supposed to be understudying. And I was like, I, um, it was, I, this is my first time. It, that's why. And then uh, that was, and, and there was no reason for me to be intimidated. She was just curious, like what, you know, have you hadn't seen this before? And then when I was up for the Dana Carvey show, um, she said, she said at one point, she goes, you make sure and let me know uh, when you get that. Not if you get that, when you get that. And I was like, thank you. Uh, and then as soon as I got it, she was the first call I made because she was the first person that said, I want to know, you know, um, you know, no slight to anybody else, you know, to no, no slight to my touring company, no slight to Kelly Leonard, who was producing at the time or Beth Kliegerman or anybody. Um, but Joyce wanted to know. So I was like, yes, I'll tell Joyce. And the way she reacted, it was so genuine. She goes, oh, that's the best news in the world. And mind you, she had. She had heard from so many alumni of of Second City. Like, I just got, you know, Saturday Night Live, which was a much bigger deal than the Dana Carvey show. Or I got a five-picture deal or whatever, you know, talking with uh, Bill Murray or Dan Aykroyd or, you know, um, any of the other amazing performers from those early days. Um, but she acted as if it was genuinely the first time she had ever heard such amazing news. And it was because it was another new generation, another new improviser um, that, you know, she helped foster by what she helped create. Wow. Great story. Uh, what uh, touring company were you, were you with Bill or I was those in Blue you were in, I was Blue in Blue Co. Co. Which means when I, when I was hired up, my company was, um, Ali Faranakian, Rachel Dratch, Rachel Hamilton, Francis Callier, and Kevin Dorf. Oh, that was my house. So I was the ultimate freshman. I was quaking in my boots because most of them I had only seen on the stage. And I was in awe of Kevin Dorf and wound up being his roommate for a year. Um, and, you know, I had, you know, Francis had been there longer than anybody, uh, both performing and teaching. And um, Ali, I had seen in, with the family that night. Rachel Hamilton was kind of like a senior, and I was a freshman in comedy sports. So, you know, she was already moving up into Second City as I was just coming into comedy sports. So everybody was this very – and then Rachel Dratch, I had the world's biggest crush on. Uh, we, You know, everybody that was in that company was – I was, you know, in awe of – so it was the best experience. And then later, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler moved up into that company when um, um, when Rachel moved up to main stage and when um, uh, Francis moved up to ETC, I believe. Uh, that created two new openings. So they brought in Tina and Amy. And So so uh, they were technically behind Rachel. or I mean, they were – I don't know if that's the right word or not, but but they were then the freshmen and you guys were had moved up. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Amazing. 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 And uh, I knew that when, when Tina and Amy had done this thing that was very different from anything that I had seen in any review and probably harkens back closer to the early roots of second city. It was, um, 
poetic monologue called I Want to Be an Action Hero. And they were they were reciting it at the same time, and they trade off lines and trade off words, and it was spoken word, and it was so wonderful. I was like, I've never seen anything like that here at this theater. They're going to revolutionize the place. And they went on and did that. Amazing. In so Amazing. many different ways. So did you not you so it's not, you didn't get to do a review then at Second City then you, you got not a main stage review. Piece. I I understudied for a month in Adam McKay's role uh, in Pinata Full of Bees, Pinata, which was yeah. talk about you know um, uh, a show that really really kind of like shook things up at Second City because there was it was very Brechtian in that people would change costumes and things on stage. It was um, very much like a herald because all the scenes got called back and intertwined by the end. Um, it was way, I think, a lot more radically political than most of the reviews I had seen there, you know, because I, you know, I had seen reviews like, you know, Iraq, you break. <laughs> we just made an Iraq reference. And this one was, you know, it was starting with like this post-apocalyptic gas mask vision uh, that was that satirized the America's always going to win mentality and um, and ended with people cutting up, literally cutting up their blockbuster cards, which at that time was <laughs> unthinkable. That was the only way to access all this entertainment that was out there. And people were like, yeah, screw this company for what they're doing. And Adam McKay would be cutting them up or no, he was doing the monologue as I think John Glazer in a donkey mask was cutting up the, uh, the cards on stage. And I got to do that for a month. I got to step in, you know, um, another one of my comedy heroes since I saw those guys perform with the family the first time. Um, got to perform in his shoes for about a month. Um, and then I didn't get moved up permanently because um, Kevin Dorf was senior to me, but he was in Edinburgh, Scotland. And and uh, by that point, he was with Green Co., not Blue Co., um, so he was, they picked up Green Co. and took them to Edinburgh and uh, he was performing there. And so he, they couldn't move him up right away. And so I got to do it for about, a, pardon me, a month, which was awesome. It was great to have equity pay for a month because I'd quit my bank job thinking, now I'm a professional actor and I'm going to tour the country and bam, 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 and I'll be on SNL by next week. And no, um, uh, I eventually made, you know, eventually made my, my voice made it onto SNL, but it didn't happen right away, certainly. Interesting. And, was there a yeah. hierarchy to, 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 to Green Co., Blue Co.? What was the other one? Red Co.? Or? Red Co.? No, I don't think there was a hierarchy. I think at one point Green Co. was the one that they would go to for industrials more often. And then that stopped being the case because Second City Communications kind of like blew up really big there in the 90s. Um, because it was, we were going, we were all living through the backlash to the stand-up boom, you know? Right. Yeah, of course. Improv had its day, and that, that was part of that. So, um, um, I, I, I always thought that, I mean, you know, they had gay co and I was like, well, why don't you put the rest of us minorities into, into brown co, you know, do, do brown co. Ali and, would always, Ali would always say that, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He was like, why isn't there a Bronco? Yeah. You know, yeah. Made sense. And he would call it second city spice. Uh, well, I think, I mean, that's, that's why I started Tilda del Toro and I put together Uh the Latino improv and sketch comedy group, Salsation, you know, and it's still going. And so needed. 
Yeah. Don't need it. Don't need it. Yeah. Um, and, and, it, and I've always maintained it wasn't that anyone was being exclusionary. It was just that, you know, there's so many Latinos, but none of us were stepping up and, and going to study improv or at Second City or, or anything. So or it wasn't were, like there were probably microaggressions keeping them out of it, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember uh, Ricky Carmona saying something like that, where, you know, he, he was Cuban. So he's, he's you know, black mm-hmm. and Latino. Yeah. And it was, he goes, he goes, you know, you step on stage, they're like, you know, oh, like stick him up or whatever. And he's like, okay, I guess I'm that guy, you know, that's, you know, that's and so, so you, you, yeah, you, you're right. You're right. That could have been that, that, that may have been the, the issue, but I'm glad we found our home with Salsation, which then became Barrio Speedwagon. Yeah. So, uh, That's such but, a great but, uh, name, Barrio Speedway. I love great names. Like, you know, I mean, who was there? Was Stir Friday Night. Uh, yes. We Be Negroes. Uh, yeah. The OUI, We, we Be. Uh, yeah. Man, I mean, uh, Oh Nation of Improv, I think, is also another. Yes. <laughs> and they'd wear the bow ties and everything, the Nation of Improv. It's yeah. fantastic. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, I love a good. I know that sometimes they say punnery is the lowest form of comedy, but I love it. Um, I disagree. I love my puns personally. I think I love it. I love it. Um, so, so what year, if you don't mind, uh, was was this? So this would have been like what ninety five, ninety six? The pinata full of bees, or is that even uh, earlier? Pinata full of bees would have been, I think, ninety five. Ninety five. Because the Dana Carvey show was ninety six, and then I moved out to L A. in ninety seven. Wait, so, so then did we not hang out in Chicago? I think I made that up because uh, I may have – No, we, we, we did back. hang out and here's here's what happened. Um, I would come in frequently because, I, you know, I would, you know, reconnect with everybody that I knew from then. And so we were all part of the same crowd. So we would wind up hanging out at Last Act and, you know, in the, in the lobby at Second City and all those places. Uh, and I definitely got to know you more when you moved out to L.A., but there was definitely uh, a period in time where, you know, I came back and I was like, you know, oh, who are these new people? You know, I met you and a bunch of other people that who hadn't been like, you know, in the system at the same time I was. But, you know, we're always this continuous family, at least hopefully, um, you know, that's been there from the history and new people coming and, you know, other people who have been doing it for a while moving on to other things. And um, but, yeah, we definitely hung in Chicago. Yeah, and, and now that you mentioned that, I, I do remember that because it was the same thing. Even in two thousand, when I finally made the move to LA, when you, I, you know, I was probably back five, six times a year because you miss Chicago. You love Chicago so yeah. much, and, and you're right. You're like, oh, who are these new people? And then, and you meet them, and you try to encourage them to move to LA because that's where they're going to need to be, or New York. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it, yeah, it's, it's all getting much clearer now. Where. Uh, and I remember even performing with you at, at some festival or something where I threw out a horrible first line. And I was like, why would I do that? I know nothing about Shakespeare. But you ran with it. And I was like, this is why they're brilliant. They're they such brilliant <laughs> improvisers. And I sort of, I was like, to be or not to be? And then somehow the scene was great. But thanks to you, because I was like, I know nothing about Shakespeare. Why? You're such a dummy. Why would you say that? Uh, but, uh, but you made it work. Of course you did. Um, so how did the Dana Carvey show reach out? How did they find Bill Cott in Chicago? It, was it like Second City or Saturday Night Live where they come and watch you perform or? No, it was very different. Um, it was, it was unique and, you know, everybody has a different path to both Saturday Night Live and the different shows that they do. And, 
you know, while there is that regular thing of, you know, Saturday Night Live coming in and sitting on the rail at Second City and watching the main stage show, ETC, and that year they went out to Northwest. And the amazing cast at Northwest included Dave Keckner, Todd Stashwick, Nancy Walls. And um, there was something about the chemistry with that cast that they wanted to see all those people. And eventually out of that crew, both Dave and Nancy made it onto SNL that season. And um, Todd Stashwick, they were really hot on uh, because he was more of like a sex symbol sort of a guy, you know, which was unique for him because I think he was, you know, he grew up kind of thinking of himself kind of nerdy, but he was already starting to like blossom into a hunk sort of a guy. And, you know, he's always doing those sexy sort of villains now. But um, I think they saw that appeal in him. And so they were really courting him a lot for that show, too. And he, he said, um, you know, you really should take a look at one of the one of the Turcos at Blue Co. And in particular, you should look at Bill Cott. And so uh, I was I spent most of those summers uh, in in the second city in the war room where it was always air conditioned. And uh, I was hanging out there. And I was getting up. And uh, Dave Keckner said, hey, you know, there's a message for you in that message box, right? And I was like, what? I never even <laughs> used the message box. And I was like, what? And I looked at it and it was, you know, um, uh, I can't remember. Oh, God. What casting company was it? Uh, anyway, they were like, you know, hey, they want to see you for uh, for the Dana Carvey show. Or no, for Saturday Night Live. And so I auditioned for Saturday Night Live. And got flown out to to New York for that with all those other wonderful folks. And I didn't get it because I did my impression of Jackie Gleason taking a difficult crap. And <laughs> it, was, it was a big hit in the Second City shows, but it tanked yeah. in front of Lauren Michaels while I was standing there with a red light on me. And I just froze. And I was doing a, a song that I had written to close out my act because I was like, big finish. And then, I, and then I stumbled on the lyrics and I paused and said, let me start that again. And, you know, any other audition, they go, okay, great, take two. But you can't do that on live TV. So I think that that was the point at which I lost SNL. But Robert Smigel, who was exec producing the Dana Carvey show uh, about a year later, remembered my audition, thought it would be hilarious to have me do that impression or, yeah, the impression of Jackie Gleason for Dana Carvey. Um, so I was touring back on the road with Second City doing an industrial in New York when they said, Hey, we, they want to see you at ABC in New York. And I was like, I'm doing an industrial in New York. And they oh, said, there. can you get across town? And I pleaded with Joe Keefe. I said, can I get to ABC to do this? Um, it's like, it's, it's basically a callback audition because they already know they wanted to see me. They called for me. And he said, only if you can guarantee, because what we were doing was a live national hookup for this company out of the set of Moesha. Remember the talk show Moesha? We were on her set, filming it live with these cameras, doing the industrial scripts that we had been sold, but it was being broadcast to big meeting rooms all over the country for whatever company it was. It might have been Sears or whatever, national, big national company. I can't remember anymore what it was for, because to me, the most important thing that day was getting to ABC7 uh, in New York and reading. And um, they, they asked us to do... Um, like three characters and three impressions, or you could just read through this monologue three times as three different characters. And instead of doing that, 
I took the monologue and cut it into like 27 different voices, characters, and accents. And some of them weren't that deep. It was just like, you know, oh, he also does a Russian accent. Good to know. But everyone was distinctly different, a different voice, a different point of view, a different character. Uh, and they were a little bit blown away. Um, and then um, Smigel, then they flew, flew me out again. Yeah, I got flown out. Me, um, Susan Messing, Scott Robinson, uh, Kate Flannery was already out in L.A., I think, at that point. And um, just a host of other people, too. Of course, Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, who wound up booking it as well. It was great to be a, have, have been a freshman while they were they were like the the college kids that came back to visit the high school after they graduated, basically. You know, they were even beyond the people that I considered the seniors. And. Um, uh, and, and so Smigel comes up to me, taps me on the knee. He goes, Hey Bill, could you do me a favor? I said, what's that? And he goes, can you do your impression of Jackie Gleason taking a difficult crap? And I was like, no, no, that's what tanked my SNL. And she's, I, I know I was watching it laughing. Cause a, I thought it was funny, even though Lauren wasn't getting it. And B, I thought it was funny that Lauren hated it. So could you please, <laughs> Dana will love it. If I set it up with that, can you please do it? And I was like, okay. And that's what got me the job. Because we had another callback. They flew us out to Igby's Comedy Club. Um, and we were all lined up. I was one of the first people to go through the door. Walked out. Um, the casting director from the network at the time came out. She was looking around. She was looking for somebody. I don't know who. But then she caught my eye. And I was like, is she looking for me? And she went like that. And I was like, is that for me? Or was, that, was she just saying because she saw me and I had just recently gone? Or I didn't know. Uh, but then... Um, uh, we did our, our first round of auditions, stuck around. I was later, was already a big fan of Bob Odenkirk, and he was kind of auditioning for that show. He had already been on the Ben Stiller show, which I loved. And I think they had already done the first season of Mr. Show. But he was, you know, eyeing out network opportunities. And so, uh, and he's like best friends with Smigel. So I think it was basically if he could get, Released from his contract at HBO, he could potentially work with his buddy Smigel on this show. Uh, and, of course, uh, he and uh, Dave Cross came in and did, you know, visit the offices and gave, give some input and stuff like that later on in the day. But I actually read lines for my audition with Bob Odenkirk, who I was thinking at the time, oh, I guess Bob's already got this job. And now he's reading with some of us people who are trying to fight it out for crumbs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, would you mind? Uh, would you mind sharing that uh, impression of Jackie Gleason, Gleason taking a difficult crap? I gotta be honest with you. I'm not prepared, and I, 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 I missed a whole night's sleep last night. So, okay. uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to, to to give you a coherent interview, and I, I, I don't think I would hit the nail on the head if I did that. But if people want to see. The documentary about the Dana Carvey show, Too Funny to Fail, they will see my impression of it there. Wonderful. And because that was actually my next question or, or you know, uh, comment is uh, about the, the documentary on Too Funny to Fail, which mm -hmm. which and thank you. And thank you for doing this. And, and as soon as you want to wrap it up, let me know, because I don't want to take up uh, the, the really rest of the night. Sure, I've got a I've got a child care swap coming in a little bit. So, OK, uh, you, you, you tell me because uh, I can Joe Rogan and we can go three hours. You know? <laughs> and I would love that. Sometime I would really love to 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 because I've never done a three hour interview. I would love to, I would, to do love uh, an interview that lasted that long. 
well, you know, we have we have there's a lot more to cover as well. But but Bill, I want to thank you for the time that you that you have spent. So so you, you tell me, you know, uh, what time is your heart out, and we'll get you out of here. By then, it's it's five o'clock right now. Uh, it is have five another, o'clock, and you just asked a question, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do not not the not the um, not the Jackie Gleason question, but uh, I'll answer whatever question you are moving on to. I'll be happy to answer that for you for sure. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, well, I mean, I, I guess we should continue with this with the Dana Carvey show because it, it was it was too funny to fail. So what what happened, or what's your take on that? If it's something you want to address now, or we can save it for later, you know. Um, it was difficult because I, everybody around me, when we were shooting it from the cast to the writers, to the producers, to the hair and makeup and all, you know, a lot of the hair and makeup and props and all those people worked on Saturday Night Live originally from the original show. Um, and we had the best writing staff ever. And I was on the writing staff and didn't consider myself worthy. So I didn't submit as often or as much as I could have. I was just so stymied by the talent that was in that room. Um, and so I thought it was going to be a longer experience and it was like seven episodes. And then there was talk, even when it looked like it was like, that was going to be our last episode there at ABC, there was all kinds of talk about, you know, Lauren wants to do this show out of studio eight H when they're not shooting or rehearsing for SNL. And I was like, really? So I thought this was going to really be a big thing and go on and do anything. And, um, uh, of course, all of us had wonderful things happen after that, especially for, you know, Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert. Uh, Heather Morgan and I went on to do wonderful things. The, the writing staff, you know, went on to become Oscar winners, many of them. And um, it's an it was an amazing experience. Um, I found out that it was canceled um, because I picked up a USA Today and read the news. Nobody told me, no agent, no manager, nobody from the show. That was my first taste of show business, and it didn't taste quite as good as I thought it would. <laughs> wow, wow! But then, from then on, let's just maybe let people know what other projects you were you were uh, involved with, and then yeah. uh, maybe in part two we can actually do a deep dive on you know being the voice of uh, the the announcer on Ambiguously Gay Do, and obviously that's because you knew Robert Smigel. Uh, and mm -hmm. you're wildly talented, and then you know Galaxy Quest and and the Ringer, and and I mean, so if you want to maybe just just quickly gloss over for now all these amazing projects that you've been involved with, if you have time, uh, and if I, and if not, you can always save it for part two. But we can let's then definitely do, do that. Let's definitely do that in a part two. Uh, yep. What I can say is the, the projects I'm working on right now. There's a movie I did called Mid Century uh, with Bruce Dern and a lot of other you know fabulous new actors. Um, and um, I don't have a release date on that one. I also did a Netflix series, an episode of that called Monster. And it's about Jeffrey Dahmer. That's about to be seen. I'm now recurring on Young Sheldon, which is amazing. They actually like took a clip out of my second episode that I did and used it in a new episode. So I didn't even need to work and I'm recurring, which is good. Um, Lance, uh, Lance Barber's on that show, is he not? God bless Lance. Yeah, every time I've worked on that show, which has been twice now, and three, if you count the time that they just clipped and put me in it. Uh, I've spent most of the day just talking with Lance. And, you know, uh, the second time I did it was, you know, during the pandemic. It was like it was right as they were letting studios start to open again. And then they shut down right after that. So all of the precautions were in place, um, you know, mask and visor, distancing, red zones, all that. 
Um, and despite the fact that we had to distance, uh, Lance and I spent the day um, talking down the hall to one another, you know, in person. Down the hall. So, he's such a great guy. Amazing. Um, Amazing. And that show was so blessed to have him, and he was blessed to have that show. And um, one of the nicest guys I know, most down to earth. Um, just an amazing guy. Um, and then the other two things that I'm doing uh, educationally uh, with uh, with improv is I'm I'm teaching uh, at the superhero intensive that I told you about. People can go to superherotrainingcenter.com. Uh, Yvonne Landry has brought in some of the best teachers from all over. Sharna Halperin, who we mentioned mentioned earlier, is going to be teaching there. Todd Stashwick, whom we also mentioned earlier, is going to be there. Um, a teacher from the Lecoq Clown School is going to be there. I'm going to be taking that class just to learn more about clown. I'm going to be teaching a class in character and improv. And she's got all these teachers, voice teachers who are like t- voice voice coaches to like famous celebrities. Amazing. Um, and then I'm also teaching in Austin and doing a show in Austin, Texas, May 15th. If people want to find out more about that, they can send an email to uh, connect at pubpartyentertainment.com. Connect at pub, pub party. Pub, pubpartyentertainment.com. Dot com. Wonderful. Um, well, I hope you enjoy taking Lecoq uh, class. <laughs> no? I knew it was coming. Yeah, I know you did. I know you did. Do something with that. No, I'm just kidding. Bill. I did. I said coming. <laughs> I love it. Oh, it was good doing a dick joke with you today. Uh, thank you, Bill. Thank Can I say you. that on Friday? Uh, we'll have to – we'll also have to maybe, uh, you know, talk about some, some of the times we've hung out, some Vegas yes. story. I love that. Uh, oh, a, <laughs> yeah yeah um but it's it's so wonderful to see you and you again you look amazing again i mean it's, it's i think it's for your health and and uh it's it's amazing uh what you're doing i know it's not easy because i would love to find out and we'll chat later you know what you're doing because i lost something like i'm still super heavy but i lost like 65 pounds by doing yoga yeah, I, could tell. I could tell you'd lost a lot better. so i think we're both on that same journey so yeah. so thank you uh, and is uh, what that? I said, keep on losing. Yeah, <laughs> keep on losing. Well, Rich Tellerico said that, uh, you know, because his weight has always fluctuated. And when he was mm-hmm. on the main stage, there was a joke that was based on his weight. And he said the, the sweetest thing he ever heard was no laughs when they went after his weight on the stage for this joke. And then it didn't work anymore because he, he was no longer super heavy. And he said that that was kind of the sweetest sound of silence was not getting oh, any laughs. Man. You know, uh, for, for that for that joke because he'd lost so much weight. But yeah. uh, I would love to continue this another day. Um, it's and on. If you, please go to the uh, the the, the improvtrick dot com uh, if you want to learn from one of the best, well, the world's best improvisers. This is Mr. Bill Cott, award winning uh, improv teacher, and or follow him. You know, to Austin or to uh, is it Portugal? Is that was that where the Portugal, superhero uh, Figueira de Foz, which is an amazing. Uh, beachside town where uh, we're doing improv at this resort and right across the road from it, one of the largest electronic dance music festivals is going on. So it's not just like, it's, first of all, it's an amazing way to study with people from all over the world to get the skills that people need to get. Because when, when Yvonne started Superhero Training Center, the idea was, why is it that all these British actors 
wind up playing American people in American uh, um, superhero movies. And it's because Shakespeare training and part of that Shakespeare training includes uh, stage combat. And while Americans do get stage combat, every British actor learns their stage combat. And um, they learn how to do acting on a grand scale via Shakespeare. Um, they're, they're a little more, more, more well-rounded in the circus arts too. And all that, all that um, Yvonne is providing with this thing for people to come from all over Europe, but also for people from America to go there at the height of the holiday season in Europe where these amazing festivals and parties are going on. So you could right off the trip and then like pop around and enjoy the, the party across the hall, across the way and across the rest of Europe. Um, uh, or anywhere, you know, close to the continent, uh, and, and study and, and, and have a vacation, which is an amazing opportunity. Bill, that's amazing. And, and you're the perfect person to, to be teaching there. And it just goes to show you too, that as, as teachers, influencers, whatever you want to call us, we're always learning because you don't have to go there and take uh, a, a clown class, but you're doing this and it's, it's one through all my life. Amazing, amazing. I remember in Austin, we studied with uh, Antonio Clemente. Was that his name? He's, he's since passed away. I recently looked him up. And even though it was like like a one-day workshop, uh, it was it was uh, life-changing as far as, you know, Commedia dell'arte. You know, he was this Italian mm -hmm. teacher. Dell'arte. Yes. It was just inspiration. This was 20-some years ago, and I still remember it. And yeah. Antonio Mazzoni Clemente, I think I should have – I should remember his name. And it was just brilliant. So it, it's, uh, it just goes to show you, we never stop learning. Uh, and it's great to be, you know, to be spreading your knowledge because you, your, your, your course is amazing. The, 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 the improv trick, right? So, yes. Did I turn off my camera accidentally? Uh, I still see you. So, oh, so okay, don't good. stand up. I'm, I'm, I'm I, had, I had a text coming in. My wife, my wife is almost getting here with our daughter. So we got to do a, a handoff in just a second. So I had to take that text. Anyway, uh, thank you so much, Paul. And I really look forward to coming back for a part two. It's always wonderful talking with you, man. Bill Cott, thank you. It has been my absolute pleasure. Please, everyone, follow Bill Cott across all social media. And do you have any final, any final thoughts, any final words? Uh, Mr. Dollar Bill, twenty dollar Bill Cot, hundred dollar Bill Cot. What, what should we call twenty dollar Bill? I'll I'll keep it at at, at twenty dollar Bill. Um, uh, twenty dollar Bill, uh, which is Lance came up with that theme song for me, and uh, Lance Barber, whom we were talking about earlier. Uh, a last thought: keep on learning, no matter what you're doing, whether it's improv, acting, podcasting, uh, communications, content, people learning more about uh, trading financial instruments and things like that. You can always learn something new. So keep learning. I think that is wonderful advice. So folks, uh, please, please uh, visit the improv trick.com to connect with Mr. Bill Cott. I'm at paulvato.com. And thank you guys so much for spending uh, part of your day with us. And if you didn't get here at the beginning, you can always go back and re-listen. So Bill, I'm going to invite the weight bot over and thank you. And every, uh, thank you guys so much all for being here. Thank you, Bill. Thanks a lot, Paul. In this hombre, hold another bottle. Look a little closer, cigar in Moscato. An actor in improv coming from Chicago. Outdoor, make way for Paul Vato.